read from the book of Revelation chapter 22. In fact, we're going to read the last chapter of the Bible. So if you want to find that in your Bible, it may be one of the easiest things you ever have to look up in the Bible. Go to the back and work your way forward till you get to verse 1, chapter uh, 22, and you're there. So... But for the sake of those who finish the journey, I want to read a poem to you. And I, I don't like read sermons any more than anybody else. But sometimes, you know, you just got to read it because ad-libbing, as I know from much experience, is dangerous. I want to read this poem to you that was written by Amos R. Wells. And I believe those of you who have finished the B90 journey will relate to it, especially I supposed I knew my Bible, reading piecemeal, hit and miss, now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis, certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, 12th of Romans, 1st of Proverbs, yes, I thought I knew the word, but I found that thorough reading was a different thing to do, and the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. Oh, the massive, mighty volume, oh, the treasures manifold, oh, the beauty of the wisdom and the grace it proved to hold. As the story of the Hebrews swept in majesty along, as it leapt in waves prophetic, as it burst the sacred song, as it gleamed with Christly omens, the Old Testament was new, strong with cumulative power when I read the Bible through. Ah, Imperial Jeremiah, with his keen, coruscant mind, and the blunt old Nehemiah and Ezekiel refined. Newly came the minor prophets, each with his distinctive robe. Newly came the song idyllic and the tragedy of Job. Deuteronomy the regal to the towering mountain grew with its comrade peaks around it when I read the Bible through. What a radiant procession as the pages rise and fall James the sturdy, John the tender, oh, the myriad-minded Paul. Vast apocalyptic glories, wheel and thunder, flash and flame, while the church triumphant raises one incomparable name. Ah, the story of the Savior never glows supremely true till you read it whole and swiftly, till you read the Bible through. You who like to play at Bible, dip and dabble here and there, just before you kneel a weary and yawn through a hurried prayer. You who treat the crown of writings as you would treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look. Try a worthier procedure, try a broad and steady view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. Anybody been through that now? You B90 people, is that ring true with you? Yep. Amos Russell Wells lived from 1862 to 1933, and I'm guessing he did it once or twice. What a beautiful story, a beautiful poem. Now, let's look at Revelation 22, and that'll be our conversation for the next few minutes. Revelation chapter 22 at verse 1. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, so again, listening to me read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb. 
Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but that's one that gives me cold shivers when I read it. That is potent stuff. That is the promise of our Lord. And as I read that to you, especially those who have at least read the first chapters of Genesis and now reading the last chapters of Revelation, perhaps you've noticed that it's come full circle, that now the entire Bible has led to what God intended from the beginning and what God sought from the beginning. Now, there's been a great deal of suffering and sorrow in the 
thousands of years between the beginning and the end. And I'm guessing that when we get to that place where we're living in his presence as the bride, we probably won't recall these things. No one could say for sure except the Lord. But the truth is there's only going to be one person in all of God's presence in the holy sacred union of God and the people of God and all the heavenly hosts. And as all of that becomes one place again, heaven on earth, earth and heaven as one thing, there will be only one who will have scars. And that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us will be made new. And so the old things are forgotten. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow, no more suffering. But his scars will serve as an everlasting reminder of the price that had to be paid in order that we would be in that place. Welcome in the society of God and the very presence of God. And surely, just as it was in Eden, we too will walk in the presence of God in those days. That's exciting news. That is exciting news. See how the gates of Eden aren't even locked or blocked anymore. Now they're just wide open. In fact, Eden has become not just an isolated place in the midst of the earth, but it is the earth. That all the evil that existed outside of Eden is gone. And there is no separation. There's no place you can go where you're not in God's presence. I love how it says that there will be no natural light because the light of the glory of God will provide light in all things. You won't need lamps. You won't. I want to tell you exactly why that one is a particular blessing to me. Because I rise and fall with the sun. And I'm going to tell you, in the dark months of winter, it's really hard for me to roll out of bed. And it's even harder for me to stay awake after the sun goes down. So I'm looking forward to paradise with the Lord where the sun shines round the clock. And I don't have to worry about whether I feel motivated and energized by light. So there's that. We can look at this as an indication of everything that we long for, everything that we desire. And it is trustworthy and true. Everything that John has shared with us in this revelation is trustworthy and true, and it comes from the Lord Jesus. I want to give you just a little instruction on the book of Revelation. If you want to learn a lot more about Revelation, uh, it just so happens that I did 30 weeks of instruction from the book of Revelation. So that's around 30 hours worth of stuff, and it is available on our YouTube channel and also on Right Now Media in the Shiloh uh, section and uh, if, and also have study notes that you can print and copy as needed. But here's what I want you to hear about the revelation. Whose revelation is it? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's who defined it. In the first chapters of Revelation, Jesus says, this is the revelation that I am sharing with you. So they're speaking of angels who, who, who are telling John about certain things he's seeing. So he's got, he has Jesus who's revealing a specific uh, sort of like 
document. You know, he, Jesus is expressing a revelation to John, and it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet, while John is witnessing this revelation, he also has angels who come alongside him and explain some of the things he's seeing. And so, when you hear these last words then, you're hearing the combination of the angel and Jesus summing it all up for John. And Jesus is the one who commands that nothing be added or taken away. Jesus is the one who says, this is my revelation. Now, the way I take that is that we are to absolutely expect those things to come to pass. That's, that's it. I mean, I just, I, you know, there's really not much more to say about it than that. It's an indication from our Lord Jesus that this is something that we don't want to get wrong. That, that there are lots of things that we might read in our Bibles and interpret differently, but this is one that is absolutely true as it is provided to us. And although John has witnessed things that he barely has words to describe and we read things that we barely have words to comprehend, there are certain things that are absolutely trustworthy and true, and that is that God will bring justice to the world. That God will reward those who put their faith in his son, because in doing so, he honors the son. That he is, you know, I, I've had people ask me, I'm, I'm digressing slightly, but I've had people ask me, you know, if God didn't want people to sin, then why give them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If God didn't want people to reject uh, Jesus, then why not give Jesus the authority to, to demand their, well, that's just not how God operates. And the truth is the thing that is done willingly, humbly, and submissively is the thing that God delights in the most. And so your humility is the thing that God desires more than anything from you. To put your love for Christ ahead of your love for self. To trust that it isn't through any religious system or, or personal acts of, of uh, mercy and grace in and of yourself that, that redeem you. It is Christ who redeems you. We were talking in the men's breakfast yesterday about this, and, and, and it was exciting because, you know, these men, you know, they, they don't just eat bacon and, and eggs. They talk, and they talk about some pretty good stuff. And one of the things we talked about was that when you stand before God, God sees Jesus. That it's as though Jesus is standing between you and God and protecting you from God's glory and the radiance of God, you wouldn't be able to stand. And those of you who have read the entire Bible know exactly what I'm talking about because there are plenty of times when God's glory is visually present and the humans can, they can't stand it. So when you stand before God as a sinner, the only reason you survive the experience is because Jesus is standing before you. You're standing in his shadow. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You stand in Jesus' shadow in the same way that the shadow in En Gedi protects you from the penetrating sun in the desert above. And so as you stand behind Jesus, 
having your sin covered by Jesus, you realize the true potency of faith in Christ, that it doesn't depend on you, that it's never been about you. Maybe as you've read through the entire Bible, you've begun to realize that the the journey toward justice is not just about your just desserts, but about all of creation. The book of Revelation is telling us the story of how God brings it all back into cosmic order. And that the rebellion of heavenly hosts will be dealt with. The evil that has been done in the name of God's enemy will be dealt with. And even God's enemy will be dealt with. And so when we are humble enough to recognize that there's more to the story than just our well-being and our eternal well-being in particular, when we begin to realize that, then we are really understanding the way things work, the way things really are. And therefore, when you go before God, you realize that God is setting all things right. And as Christ is your King and Lord, he sets you right and on the right path. Keep in mind then that this is not only the story about a distant time that may be closer than we think, but it's a story about right here and right now. That if you live as though the only justification you have is Jesus Christ crucified for your sin, then you behave differently towards the people in your lives. You behave differently because of the way that you understand God's view of you and your life. And so when we talk about living a Christian life and acting as Christian believers, the Bible informs us that religious systems that have been cluttered up and dirtied by human interpretation will always leave us wanting before God and eventually even leave us so corrupt that God doesn't want anything to do with us. But on the other hand, when you consistently recognize that what Jesus is saying in this last book of the Bible is absolutely trustworthy and true for right now, then you begin to understand that justice is coming, that justice comes both to those who deserve punishment and those who deserve rewards. But here's the kick. If you start thinking about what you deserve, you're probably on a shaky ground, so don't. Just know that one day when God is done setting everything right, your humility, your sacrifice, those things that you gave up because they seemed like barriers between you and the Lord, all of that will be taken into consideration. You live now as though you expect to be judged then. And it won't be the things you do wrong as much as it'll be the things you do right that God will see because it's filtered through the lens of Christ our Savior. Amen? All right, let's wrap this up. I want to go back to the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in the first part of the book of Revelation. They are probably some of the most important 
things you will ever read in your entire Bible. This is the Lord giving a Christian report card to certain types of Christians and the churches that they generate. I'm not going to read the entire letters to you. I'm going to sum it up in a few sentences. The church in Ephesus is called the church that has abandoned its love for Christ and his teachings. And so Jesus has much that he likes about them, but he doesn't feel the love anymore. Think of a marriage. Been married a long time. It's comfortable, but it's still filled with passionate love. This is what Jesus is saying to Ephesus. Smyrna is the little church that remained faithful even in the midst of terrible persecution. And there's nothing bad said about Smyrna. What does that say to us? It means that if you suffer and sacrifice because of your devotion to Christ, he will find you worthy. And he will love you for it. That's a church or type of Christian that has recognized that a little discomfort now weighs very little up against eternity with Christ and hearing his praise, well done, good and faithful servant. Pergamum is the church that compromises its beliefs, tends to try to reframe things so that it's more palatable and more comfortable for people and religions and politics. Pergamum is a church that, given enough time, and a type of Christian that, given enough time, might ultimately redefine God and make God in its own image. Thyatira is the church that follows false prophets. Well, no Christian or person who follows Christ with real devotion or church that follows Christ with real devotion it seems, would be able to take hold of the teaching of a false prophet, but it has everything to do how well, with how well-rooted you are in the truth. This is why this pastor emphasizes so much that you read Scripture and that you meet in small groups to hold each other accountable to the truth of God's Word. And I don't necessarily mean the Bible. We don't worship the Bible here. We we worship the God of the Bible. We worship the word, it's Jesus Christ, that is expressed in Scripture. If you're rooted in those things, you'll find it difficult to be uprooted by the winds that blow in the form of false prophecy, false teaching, and errant religion. Sardis is the church that is spiritually dead. May I say that as a pastor, there have been a number of churches I've been in that were spiritually dead, where it was apparent to me that the Holy Spirit hadn't been around in a long time, but they did have great noodle suppers and hymn sings and a beautiful sanctuary. Sorry if that hurts, but it's the truth. It can look good on the outside, like whitewashed tombs on the side of the Mount of Olives. But inside is nothing but air and bones. And this happens in churches, just like this one. And they are like Sardis. Philadelphia, the church that patiently endured despite its weakness. A little church with much 
less to offer their community in the way of vitality, but their faithfulness was pleasing to the Lord Jesus because they loved in the perfect imitation of him as much as it could be perfected in a human. And finally, Laodicea, the infamous Laodicea, because how many times have I heard churches and people who call themselves Christians say bitterly, you are lukewarm and I spew you out of my mouth and they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Sorry, but it's true. Laodicea was a church that just couldn't get off the fence. I told someone just recently, and I conclude with this, that I have found that there are certain people who will say to me, you know, pastor, I've been listening to you for the last few years and, and everything you're saying is so compelling and, and I am so ready to try to you know, embrace what you're telling us and what the Lord seems to be saying through you and the way that the Spirit seems to be acting. And, and, and I'm just, I'm so close, but I, I'm so comfortable. I literally have had people tell me this in private conversation, and I don't want you to think about who, because I'm reflecting on 25 years worth of ministry here. I'm saying that there are always people who are like Laodicea. They're not bad people. It's just that when they realize that all their lives they've been kind of living this casual, comfortable version of Christianity and now it's starting to really dawn on them that it requires more selflessness, that it requires more devotion to Christ, that it it requires so much more of us than we were really willing to give that we got comfortable and we preferred to be around pastors and religions and and Christians who affirmed our comfort. And then some smart aleck comes along and says, let's just see what it really says in here and let's own it whether it hurts or not. And it, it's unsettling because it's true and your heart knows it's true. But it's also so difficult to move after you've been so comfortable for so long. That's Laodicea. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you watch The Chosen, think about that first season conversation between Jesus and the character Nicodemus and how Nicodemus was so close, so close to dropping everything and following Christ, but he couldn't escape what it would cost him. And frankly, it's a lot harder when you're older because it forces you to think about how you've lived up to this point and what it would cost you to live differently after so much life that way. But the reality is, is that you're an eternal creature and therefore you're just a baby, even if you're 90 years old in the eyes of Christ. You think about that as I pray, please. Almighty God, I thank you and I praise you today for your word and your presence. I thank you for inspiring us, forcing us to be a little uncomfortable. Help us, Lord, to live in the shadow of Jesus and to glorify him, show him to everyone we meet. And hear us, Lord, as we humbly submit to your leadership in our lives. Amen. Amen.